Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. We are still in the book of Matthew in the, in the big chapter with the Beatitudes. It's Matthew 5, and today we're studying uh, verses 21 through 37. So, Alan, why don't you get us started? Thanks, Christy. Um, and yes, we are still in the Sermon on the Mount, and unfortunately, in this cycle of the Revised Common Lectionary, this is the last passage in the Sermon on the Mount that we'll be dealing with. I, I hate the way the lectionary <laughs> really does awkward. that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, because there's so much more here, but um, well, in a different year, it might be different because of the way that we're depends Lent falls on where and Easter it, falls. If, if Easter falls later, then we then get more. We get more, <laughs> right? Right. So our gospel lesson this week brings us to the meat of the matter in the Sermon on the Mount, and Matthew presents Jesus' teachings about the demand for the greater righteousness of the kingdom of God in some ways that are perhaps uncomfortably specific. I agree. Yeah, <laughs> it's it is a bit uncomfortable. I think people don't like to read this because it is. Yeah. Very yeah. specific. Kind of in your face. Yeah. Right. So how does this fit within the context then of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I think as we've already seen in our first two podcast segments on the Sermon on the Mount, when we read the demand for a greater righteousness here, uh, we must presuppose that the basis for this demand was the grace that God extended to them and the blessings of the kingdom outlined in the Beatitudes, as we talked about two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in Jesus' proclamation of and demonstration of those blessings, even prior to the sermon, mm-hmm. uh, as he was proclaiming the good news and as he was going around healing people. So this is kind of part of, if you will, Matthew's overall theme it is. for his his. We, we uh, need to read it in gospel. the context of Matthew's gospel okay. as a whole. I think we also need to remember, um, you know, as I said Last week and the week before, we really kind of have to read the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. And so we need to look forward and, and remember that Jesus sums up this greater righteousness in the golden rule, mm-hmm. in everything due to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. Right. And as I mentioned last week, that forms a kind of uh, brackets with uh, the statement, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Right. And so um, with this in mind, I think we can trace how Jesus outlines this new obedience that he's calling for, reoriented toward the command to love God and others, and, and that includes one's enemies in the later part of chapter 5. And and the idea is we're to do this not only from the heart, but also in authentic practice and action, in the way we live. Wow. So that kind of gets us to today's passages. Yeah, um, our passage for today introduces what are called oftentimes the antitheses. Mm -hmm, I've heard that. Mm -hmm. And that they have been called that is based on the fact that Jesus introduces a quote from the law and or the tradition with, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, and then follows it up with his own instruction introduced with, but I say to you. And so thus, formally speaking, Jesus is setting his own teaching over against citations of the law, mostly the Ten Commandments Mm -hmm. here. But when you look below the surface, it's clear that Jesus is not contradicting or abolishing the law, but rather fulfilling it, as we saw Mm -hmm. last week. And so, for example, in the case of the command, you shall not kill or murder, Jesus goes beyond the letter of the law and addresses the anger and even the disregard for the value Mm -hmm. of human life that makes it possible for someone to commit murder. 
So, and, and this is unique because, you know, rabbis would teach, would, would give their own sayings, but it would only be after they cited a long list of previous rabbinic statements. You know, they would, they would, they would mm-hmm. recite the, the tradition and they, they would have memorized the tradition of the rabbinic teachings on a certain passage of scripture. And only then would they give their interpretation. And mm. so Jesus is just, let put you know oh, putting yeah, his right. own, he's speaking on his own authority here mm-hmm. um he is presenting his own pronouncements as having equal weight and even in some cases surpassing that of the law which implies i think a significant christological i claim. think so too i mean yeah. to go that far and yep. be able to say but i say i mean wow who, I mean, who gets to say that <laughs> he's citing the ten commandments <laughs> right, right and right. so so you know um, this is a significant implicit in Christological claim. And I think mm-hmm. sometimes um, when people um, try to try to study the Christology of the Gospels, they overlook things, indicators like this. Yeah, I think, um, I think it would be easy to overlook. And yet this is really... Um, it's astonishing. Astonishing. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So then our lesson for the week begins um, with the prohibition of murder in the Ten Commandments. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to the Gehenna of fire. That's Matthew five twenty-one through 22. And I think what's clear here is that Jesus addresses the anger and disregard for human life mm-hmm. that facilitates murder. And so he goes underneath the action. And, of course, the question has, that has arisen is whether this applies to killing in general. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is a bigger question regarding the original, ten com- the original command in the Ten Commandments. And, you know, there are still traditions today that um, believe that um, this, this commandment prohibits any taking of life. Right. And, and so um, um, you have people who um, claim conscientious objector status um, when it comes to serving in wartime right. and this kind of thing. I, you know, I, I don't think that there is any way to resolve that particular question about this mm-hmm. um, because I, I, th- I think that really, you know, Jesus doesn't come right out and say, you know, that this means you shall not kill, period. Mm-hmm. And it's clear in the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible that the commandment was not viewed as a prohibition against um, killing in wartime. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, personally myself, I tend to be uh, a pacifist myself, and I tend to take the, the view that, that Jesus, you know, whom would Jesus kill? <laughs> whom would Jesus have us right. kill? Right. Uh, but um, I don't think you can really... Um, demonstrate that uh, based on the New Testament. I don't. I don't think there's enough. There's enough clarity in what Jesus says. Well, I think we want to make it a that. black and white issue, mm-hmm. and I think in the kingdom there would be no killing, right? right. It, it, ideally, in God's kingdom, yes. that wouldn't happen. But we live in this broken world. And what do you do when when a Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine? Right, or, you know, right, right. Yeah, Is there so, a greater good? And of course, right. we have many of our theologians that address address yeah. this. Yes, indeed. Um, but it, uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I've been one of those is that I, I can't even, you know, kill a bug because mm. it, it does a God's creatures, right? So yeah. it, it can't, and it can get very 
it can get very burdensome on your shoulders. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, I stepped on a whatever, you know. And yeah. um, I don't think that's the point here. I think no, I don't I think, either. I think I think Jesus is is trying to to lift up the original intention of the command, which is to to value human life. Right. Yeah. yeah. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Now, the language of Matthew's rendition of Jesus' teaching here is difficult to say the least. <laughs> Literally, it addresses those who might say "raka" or "fool," and and the Greek is literally raka or more to a brother. And many English versions simply transliterate the unusual word raka without further explanation. Others attempt some sort of dynamic equivalence like you idiot. Uh, That's the Mm -hmm. common English Bible and the New Living Translation and the message or you good for nothing. That's the New American Standard, which I find is interesting because the New American Standard is usually a fairly woodenly literal translation, and they usually avoid any kind of dynamic equivalence. Still others follow the pattern of the NRSV and render it with insult. Um, You know, um, whoever insults a brother or sister Mm. will be liable to the council. That doesn't seem to quite... No, it doesn't. Either. I mean, you it's, can see it's the problem vague. with it, right? Yeah, um, yeah. The translation just doesn't quite work. No, it doesn't. Um, and others try to get at the meaning. So, Phillips in his translation, anyone who contemptuously calls his brother a fool. Mm. So, there you get the contempt, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Or Tom Wright's New Testament for Everyone, say, anyone who uses foul and abusive language. I like that, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah Tom. Go Tom. <laughs> I pers- I'm to really like him. <laughs> he's a good. He's a he's a solid scholar. Yeah, and he's a he's a he's a he's a you know a servant of the church. I mean, he's he's done his work within the church intentionally all of his all of his mm-hmm. career. So he's 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 a he's a he's a pretty good guy. Now, I personally find a helpful analogy in the way warring factions often use derogatory language, um, calling people vermin calling people uh, demeaning nicknames like Krauts mm-hmm. or Gooks. Oh, yeah, I, right, okay. You mm-hmm. know, which basically dehumanizes their enemies and thus makes killing them easier to accomplish. That's good. Yeah. But I how think, would you how would you translate it, though? I mean, how would you translate it so that each individual ruler would, would come away with that? Each reader would come away with that sense. I, I think. I think cockroaches. Maybe I, I would probably. <laughs> I would probably put it put together a combination of Phillips and Tom Wright. Anyone who contemptuously uses foul and abusive language. I like that. Yeah. You know, because because showing that kind of contempt and that kind of disregard for the value mm-hmm. of the, the life of a person is tantamount basically right. to 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 committing well, and, murder and when you think about when you think about the for example the holocaust part of it was to dehumanize the jews yes. right to make them not human not only or, the jews i mean well, the right. gypsies and, um, and the yeah, communists the Sinti and roma the, exactly the 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 um, well, trade unionists yeah, gay, um, and gay, gay men, men. Mm-hmm. yeah 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 so it was it was a I mean, and that's that's something that we've seen throughout history, you know, that right. that especially even and, and particularly in wartime, you know, soldiers adopt these the humanizing um, this derogatory dehumanizing language. Mm-hmm. But it's you don't just just see it in wartime. You see it. I oh, mean, in everyday life, you see it all the time. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Now, of course, the discussion of prohibiting anger raises significant problems because how can one enforce such a prohibition unless the anger is expressed, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, because, you know, how many times have you gotten angry and not said anything? And so, Mm -hmm. like, for example, in Ephesians 4.26, Paul can say, be angry, but do not sin. 
Even so, the New Testament sees anger as something to be avoided, mm. as something that is harmful. Um, and perhaps the problem is with the fact that anger includes a wide variety of human responses, you know, and, and all the way from irritation to, again, just outright uh, abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, anger, anger can be and can be righteous indignation at, at something that is wrong. Anger can be just rage because someone has um, thwarted my will. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there mm-hmm. anger is a is a is such a broad word that it's hard to hard to wrap your hands mm-hmm. heads around it. Now, another difficulty in dealing with this passage is found in that Jesus himself calls the scribes and the Pharisees, "You blind fools," right. and he uses the same well, word, moroi, right? In in Matthew twenty three seventeen. And so, you know, the question uh, arises, is there a situation where such criticism is warranted? Uh, and these are questions that the church has wrestled mm-hmm. with throughout history. And I'm sure, not sure a clear answer is possible. Um, I think we can say several things. First, Jesus takes the commandment beyond the external action of killing to the anger and or the attitude of disregard for human dignity that makes killing possible. Right, right. Uh, second, I don't think Jesus is talking about a situation where someone on the spur of the moment loses their temper and speaks out of anger. <laughs> I mean, surely that's not enough to condemn someone to Gehenna. I just can't, you know, help but thinking of Jesus turning over the tables. Yeah, um, right. I mean, that clearly is an angry action, yes, I think. Yes, so yes. we can't really condemn that, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, well, and Jesus himself speaks to the Pharisees in the very language that he prohibits here. Exactly. Right? Uh, third, I think we see the alternative solution in the following verses. If there is a break in a relationship for some offense committed, seek to initiate reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And then fourth, the fact that Jesus speaks about this in the context of a relationship with a brother or sister in Matthew's gospel likely points to relationships within the community of Jesus' disciples. It seems like that's the primary context in which that Jesus is addressing mm-hmm. this issue. But I would say this does not excuse a different standard for relationships with others who may be outside the community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, he moves on because how does he respond? How do you respond instead? Then? Yeah. And so the alternative is found in Matthew five twenty three through 24. So when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before mm-hmm. the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother yes. or sister and then come and offer your yes. gift. Now, I think it's important to note several things here. First, it appears as perfectly normal that a member of Matthew's Jewish Christian community would participate right. in the sacrificial <laughs> offerings at the temple. And that's yes. something we should not gloss over. I mean, that, that seems to be part of their life as, as Christians as well. It continues to be part of their mm-hmm. Christian life. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's an interesting thing because obviously in contemporary Christian practice, that is gone. Well, and you know, we have we have the language in the New Testament that talks about how Jesus basically did away with the sacrifices by offering himself once and for all. But these were Jewish Christians right. who still who seemed, right. still felt uh, compelled to uh, participate in the worship at well, the temple. And I do think, you know, these earlier you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but historically I'm pretty sure these 
folks were still practicing Sabbath, uh, traditional Jewish Sabbath, and then also meeting as a Christian group on maybe on Sunday. I, that's that's very likely possible. We don't know enough about Matthew's community to know for sure. Right, yeah. right, and that specific. Yeah. Right, which we knew. I mean, we're yeah. still finding the archaeology that's helping unravel mm-hmm. some of these things. But but um, it, it it would make sense. It would right yeah. um, within the context of well, because identity. the only only time you would you would worship at the temple would be on the Sabbath. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, and if it's a persecuted society, which so many were, it would make sense to do what was still very mm-hmm. socially acceptable, but then you mm-hmm. might be worshiping this Christian thing in a house, the right. house groups or catacombs or underground right. as... You know, Matthew's, Matthew's community seems to experience a break with the Jewish synagogue at some point. What we don't know is whether Matthew was written prior to that break during the break or after the break. Right. Yeah. Right. We don't know. All right. Anyway, interesting stuff. <laughs> so then second, I think what we need to understand here is the one addressed here is apparently the one who has caused offense, not the one who has been offended. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the initiative toward reconciliation is placed on the one who is aware of causing an offense. Mm-hmm. And then third, the right relationship with others, the neighbor and the enemy come before not after appropriate worship of God. <laughs> and this is uh, yes. something that you see throughout the Bible. Right. But but can you really worship if you That's are holding on to this grudge? Well, and you, and you see anger? this in the prophets, you know, don't come to me with your with your with your presumed piety right. when you've got all these other injustices, you know, trailing behind trailing with, you know, bringing mm-hmm. bringing the menu. Your hands are are filthy with with injustice, you know. Right. And so um, uh, you know, you need to wash your hands before you before you come to worship God. And the idea is, this is the way you do it. If you if you have caused an offense, you yeah. you you initiate reconciliation. Right, right, right. Um, and that that totally makes sense. So, mm-hmm. um, so moving on, then, um, um, what what else do we know about reconciliation? Well, it seems clear that Matthew has included a saying of Jesus that is found elsewhere in Q because it concerns this theme of reconciliation. And this is part of the organization of the Sermon on the Mount that if you look closely, you can see what Matthew has done. Matthew has has taken some of the original uh, Q um, framework of the Sermon on the Plain and Luke's Gospel. He has added to it some of his own unique material that perhaps he's he's composed or he's he's taken from his unique source mm-hmm. but then he has also collected teachings of Jesus that uh, relate to the themes and mm-hmm. and this is something that is that is was also a common practice of the day in terms of biblical interpretation mm-hmm. so um, uh, the next uh, in verses 25 and 26 come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on your way to court with him or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be th- thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you'll never get out until you paid the last penny. Mm-hmm. Now we see this in Q, right. Because it's in we say this is in Q because it's in Luke twelve fifty seven through fifty nine, and so this is in a mm-hmm. later context in Luke's gospel. So here, the setting and the situation seem to be entirely different, right? We're talking right. about um, a, a lawsuit mm-hmm. and and going to the court, and apparently, um, you know, there's some sort of um, 
a dispute about uh, money because you know the, the 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 one who's being accused is in danger of being thrown into prison, and, and so it's an entirely different situation. But the principle is similar, mm-hmm. and that is to take the initiative with reconciliation, right. even when it may concern an opponent. The word is antidikos here, mm. or an enemy. Interesting. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, here, one of the things that, that we'll, we'll see if we were, if one of the things we would see if we were to continue through the Sermon on the Mount is love for neighbor extends to love for enemy. And right. here we see that in the willingness to take initiative to be reconciled with one's enemy. Or right, one's opponent. right. And you could see how challenging this is too. Oh, absolutely. Just the nature, human nature. Oh, it's, yeah. uh, uh, I, I, <laughs> We get hundred hundred examples today where no one will no yeah. one will um, initiate reconciliation. Yep. So, yep. Um, and then we kind of get to this um, this piece, and this is kind of where I'm going to head in my portion on adultery and divorce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Jesus proceeds then to address the prohibition against adultery in the Ten Commandments. You have heard that it was said, "You shall not commit adultery," but I say to you that everyone looks who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is Matthew 5, 27 through 28. And I think we see a similar dynamic here to the first situation. Jesus does not abolish the commandment, but rather goes beyond the level of the external action of infidelity in marriage to the attitude mm-hmm. that motivates it. And in this case, it's clearly the attitude of lust in the heart. Now, this does not prohibit the passion that is appropriate between a married couple, which some um, uh, religious, some Christians have, oh. have, have taken it that way. Yes. And, and this does not prohibit the passion that is appropriate between a married couple, but rather it's a kind of desire that objectifies the other and turns her or him into an object to be pursued and acquired. And I think it's interesting that the verb for lust here is epithumeo, which is the Septuagint translation of the prohibition against coveting in the 10th commandment. Mm. Right, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife. Mm-hmm. Oh, so <laughs> right? yeah, getting that right. And there. so in Exodus twenty seventeen, and you know, it's not it's not clear. It's not extensive enough. You know, it's just the use of the verb. So it's not extensive enough to to be sure that Jesus is combining those two. But the the, the hint is there, and mm-hmm. I I think mm-hmm. it's important for us to notice it. I want to point out on this because for my section. Um, it's it is significant that the adultery here is initiated by a band. Yes. There's no women in here in this part, and um, that's going to get twisted actually, yeah. which yeah. is interesting. Yeah. Now again, Matthew includes other material from the Synoptic Gospel tradition that is related to the theme of lust. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw Mm -hmm. it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Matthew 5, 29 through 30. And this is parallel to a saying in Matthew 9, 42 to 47 that we took up a couple of years ago. Uh, Sorry, Mark. Yes. It's parallel to the saying in Mark 9, 42 to 47 that we took up a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's clear that the connection was made through the idea of the eye causing one to sin, likely by indulging in looking at another to lust for or covet him or her. And again, while we see the influence of an apocalyptic line of thinking here that I'm not sure is appropriate to attribute to Jesus, I think we can say that the idea of doing everything possible to avoid sin is a valid point that's consistent not only with Jesus, but also Mm -hmm. with the prophets and the rest of the New Testament. And so um, then, uh, sorry, 
Um, then we, we, he says more about adultery. Yeah, yeah. So Matthew, again, as he did in the previous section, collects a further saying from the synoptic gospel tradition and inserts it here because it... Um, because of the implications of violating the prohibition against adultery. So it's, mm-hmm. it's along the same lines of the same theme. And so um, in Matthew 5, 31 through 32, Jesus said, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, here we have a different kind of interaction with the law. Moses' original teaching about giving a wife who was sent away a certificate of divorce did not prescribe divorce, Mm -hmm. but rather the giving of the certificate um, was a way to legitimate the status in society of the woman who was so Mm -hmm. treated. And so this was a protection for the woman in, in that setting. And so, you know, it's important for us to see that Matthew, uh, that, that, that Moses was not prescribing divorce he was simply um right. prescribing um a, a course of action that would normalize the status of the woman right. in society and so in his teaching about divorce jesus takes the view that marriage is a permanent relationship mm-hmm. citing the original intention of the creator in genesis two twenty four. Um, and as, as Gene Boring says in his commentary on Matthew in the new, new interpreters Bible, um, you know, it's a part of the structure of creation in, 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 in referring back to the Genesis two passage. And so, so Jesus is represented in the, in the gospel tradition is allowing no exceptions. Marriage is permanent and any remarriage after divorce constitutes adultery. Uh, we see this in Mark 10, mm-hmm. where Jesus addresses this. We see this in 1 Corinthians 7 also as well. Mm-hmm. A- and in, in Matthew's situation, this applies to a man who is presumed to have the right of divorce. Um, and his exercising that right, Jesus says, um, affects the woman by causing her to commit adultery that is, by placing her in a situation where she will likely need to remarry because... Mm-hmm. Right, she has no status. She has no status, right. Um, you know, we, we, we talked about this before. There were some women in the Greco-Roman world who had the status to be able to initiate divorce. And it seems now we're learning that there were some women in Jewish society who had that status. But I would say that was by far the exception right. and not the rule. Yeah, yeah. So I think we must proceed carefully here because of the tendency to treat this text in a casuistic approach that devolves into merely rationalizing the conclusion one has already reached. We've already touched on the difficulty created by Jesus' approach to anger, right? Right. And we must remember that the basis of this passage is that divorce is a disruption of the intent Mm -hmm. for marriage, which is to create a permanent relationship. As as Jesus says in Matthew 15, 6, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, only in Matthew... Here in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 5, 15, 9, do we find what's known as the exception clause, apparently allowing divorce and remarriage when one's spouse has committed infidelity. But I think it's important, however, to be reminded that the sum of all that Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is about the greater righteousness that was to do to others as you would have them do to you. Mm -hmm. And thus, it is not about pointing fingers or applying labels, but seeking to deal with real human brokenness in ways that are consistent with love Mm -hmm. for God and love for others. So, you know, I think in a situation where 
um, a husband and a wife are at odds with each other and they feel like the, the conditions for the marriage have broken down irreparably, I think, I think Jesus would say, you know, this is because of the hardness of your hearts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what he says later on when he deals with the whole question of divorce. Um, this is because of the hardness of your hearts. So change your hearts. And I think Jesus would, would urge them both to, to try to reconcile. Um, right. I, I don't think, I don't see Jesus as throwing stones at people who have, who have endured the heartbreak of divorce. I don't think Jesus is saying that those who are divorced are condemned to a lifetime of singleness. I don't think that's, e- that's, that's it either. I think what Jesus is trying to do is he's dealing with a time when, you know, in this context, there was a debate over what was a legitimate justification for divorce. Right. And the conservative faction in Judaism said it was infidelity. There was a more liberal faction in Judaism that said it could be for burning the biscuits at breakfast. Right. And so that was the, that was the spectrum. Right. And, and, and essentially men assumed if my wife displeases me, I have a right, right. to divorce exactly. her. It's a, it's a time when marriage really does protect women. Yeah. And, and, and men basically were taking advantage of their rights and, and their legal status to do as they pleased, mm-hmm. basically. And Jesus, I think the primary thing that Jesus was doing was trying to say, you know, this, it should not be so among you. You, you know, if you are married, you know, this is something that is serious in God's eyes and it is intended to be a permanent relationship and you should act accordingly. If you have a problem with your wife, men, he's saying you need to, you need to uh, find a way to get your heart right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so to some extent we might say Jesus is taking a hard line here but again i think he's he's really upholding the original intention of marriage which is to create a permanent right loving relationship yeah i agree i agree i just think and as we know it's just taken so out of context to Mm -hmm. um to either force people into marriages that are no longer working which is certainly not a relationship that god intends Mm -hmm. i mean or um or it's um um Placing the blame on brokenness that's already there, if you right. will, and right. and um, well, as, and and you know, um, especially in a case of an abusive marriage, you know, it's yeah. used to keep keep a woman in an abusive marriage, and exactly. that's, that's not right. And that's not right at and all. And again, I think, as I said before, the point of this is not pointing fingers or applying labels, but the point is to is to. Um, Jesus is upholding the original right. intention for marriage, but then also. I think we need to seek to deal with real human brokenness, and there right. is real human brokenness right. all around us well, in ways that are consistent with love for God and love for and others. And perhaps not trivializing, I mean, how many people have gotten married, but they, they really, you know, they, they haven't really thought through, um, it's modern day anyway, the process about which you're getting married. I mean, this is not just a contract. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, of course, that's what it becomes in the Middle Ages and the early modern period. It's basically uh, a contract. So I would that, say, from my perspective, no-fault divorce has, has made it into a contract. Uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have no-fault divorce, but I'm saying that I think that has changed the status well, of marriage. Well, it, it does have a, a different um, a different impact, and maybe we'll talk later about a friend of mine going through one right now. But, um, yeah, it's... a people are walking out so easily. They're not Mm -hmm. taking their commitment to the marriage seriously and are not trying to 
Well, there are, there are a lot of us out here who are divorced and never wanted to be. <laughs> That's the whole point. Never <laughs> we, wanted to but be. But you have no say. But exactly. But you have right. no say. Right. Exactly. Right. So then our lesson concludes with a section about honesty that is not only found in Matthew's gospel. Uh, I'm sorry. So our lesson concludes with a section about honesty that is also only found in Matthew's gospel. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your heart, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. It's Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Mm-hmm. Now, it might be tempting to see this against the backdrop of the commandment against bearing false witness, but it's more likely, given the wording of this section, that it is a reflection on Leviticus nineteen twelve. You shall not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God. I am the Lord. And actually... I'm of the opinion that, that Leviticus 19, 1 through 18 is a kind of restatement or perhaps even an alternate version of the Ten Commandments. Mm. I, I haven't found a lot of Hebrew Bible scholars to back me up on that, but there's a lot of overlap between Leviticus 19, 1 through 18 and the original Ten, mm. ten Commandments. Um, it was recognized in the Mishnah that certain oaths were not binding, including mm-hmm. swearing by heaven, by the earth, or by one's head. Mm-hmm. And so what Jesus was addressing here was a situation in which people were kind of making a mockery by the, of the truth by a rather elaborate, if at times subtle, scheme of saving face mm-hmm. in public by making an oath that no one expected to be fulfilled. So it's a matter of saying, saying yes, you know, by heaven I'll do this, but everybody knows, oh, he, he, took, he said by heaven, that means he doesn't have any intention of doing it. Right. No, that's really good. And, yeah. and basically, Jesus advocates a simple, straightforward honesty in, mm-hmm. in its place. Mm-hmm. And so then finally, as we're heading towards the end of this discussion, um, we kind of head back to this idea of righteousness. Yeah. And I think, again, at issue here is the question of how one truly practices the greater righteousness of the kingdom of God. And as I mentioned At the beginning, Jesus gets uncomfortably specific about some things here. But in other ways, I think what we see is the intent of his teaching is clear. However, how to apply it in a specific situation in life may not be so clear. Um, Neither Jesus nor Matthew in his Sermon on the Mount attempt to cover all possible situations. But rather, what we see in general is Jesus defining the greater righteousness, which he demanded of those who would enter the kingdom of heaven, Um, as a call to seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. Mm -hmm. And so that's the priority. And I think what we see in the Sermon on the Mount is that um, that entails wholeheartedly aligning one's life with the kingdom of God that's already in the process of setting all things right and thus producing a renewed obedience uh, among Mm -hmm. those who follow the kingdom. And that obedience is defined by love that can extend even to one's enemies. And, and that's, that, mm-hmm. that's the heart, I think, of the, of, the, of the Sermon on the Mount is this theme of the greater righteousness that comes from seeking the kingdom and expresses itself in love for God and love for others. Um, that, that comes not only from the heart, but also in genuine yeah. you know, actions that, 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 are, right. that are produced right. from a genuine motivation. And this is, you know, when you read this and you kind of internalize what's saying here. I mean, this is, this is really awesome, you know, when you think about that this is what the kingdom looks like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. indeed. 
Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to take a look at what the the reformers had to say about one of the specific issues brought up, and that's marriage and divorce. So, Christy, tell us what yeah. you found. I decided to focus on this today because this has become such an important part of our behavior and actions. And I think because so many people ask me, well, is divorce a sin? Can I get remarried? Um, is remarriage after divorce living in perpetual adultery? Well, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And it, it's still on our minds and hearts today as people are trying to live out their, you know, their call as disciples. And so in looking at what the, some of the reformers did, I think is a little bit helpful. Um, and there's some things that I think are really important for today. So now remember in the Roman Catholic Church, marriage becomes a sacrament. It's it's added on to um, 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 baptism and the Lord's Supper or the Mass um, with with the other five and and becomes codified and it's partly in, partly of this is because the Roman Catholic Church wanted to have that con- kind of control right. over over relationships and there was a lot of stuff going on during the period where you'd have people claim they're married and then they there would be no witnesses no. Um, no record, and then they would say, well, you can't prove that we're married, and it really left people in a bind. Um, by the time you get to the Reformation, there's enough control over marriage, actually, by um, what was the church, but then by civil magistrates, that that's not really an issue anymore. Mm-hmm. But um, this idea that it's a sacrament does kind of shift its its space, right? But I think the Protestants um, take it, seriously and they take it seriously in a different way um than perhaps what a sacrament might imply um they in terms of um, the reformers regarded marriage as the way god created us to be married and in families and not celibate as advocated by the roman catholic church so it became as i said more of a, a means of control yeah. Um, and con- control over the lives of these people rather than um, a, 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 a sacred blessing over God's what's perfect creation, right? Mm-hmm. So I think one of the concerns of the modern-day reader of this passage is that the discussion clearly undermines a woman's authority. Sure. Um, they have no say in marriage, right? With or the, in divorce. Or in divorce. With no. the exception of her committing adultery, the discussion here is all about a man's obligation to the marriage. So it's it's kind of offensive. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just want to remember, remind folks that we have to remember this scripture is not modern and neither were the reformers. So it is only in this postmodern world where we can really discuss the inequality issues apparent in this text. But during Jesus's time, as we've discussed before, a marriage was a means for a woman to have status and to be protected. And there were a few instances of women inheriting a property and having autonomy in the Middle Ages. And Alan pointed out maybe even a few Jewish women and and women in the Greco-Roman world, but it's not very many. It's yeah. it's really the exception. Um, so we've actually, and in the Middle Ages, we actually have some some court le- records where we have female landowners, and they'll be in the record, but often they're accompanied by a male relative. But but it happened um, mm-hmm. then. So what we do find in the Reformation 
is kind of a new interest in the scripture um, with the status of marriage and the role of men and women to be faithful in that marriage actually increases. So prior to the Reformation, marriage still was more of a business contract than a love match, and you tended to see lots of promiscuity. Mm. It was pretty, <laughs> just pretty accepted. In fact, I'm often shocked by the poetry of the period, which upholds promiscuity as the norm and its lewdness really makes you blush. It's really, really scandalous. <laughs> well, and, and I don't know, but I read about certain eras, even, even you know, the 18th century. Um, and, you know, in certain circles, it's, it's like marriage is still sort of a contract between two families. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't expected that, that either the husband or the wife would love one another or right. enter into this relationship of, of being to get joined together by God. Right. But it was just a, it was just a contract right. between the families and, uh, and it was expected that each, each spouse would take their own separate lovers. You know, that was just the way it was going to be. Right. Right. <laughs> and it particularly, you know, particularly wealthy men would yeah. be involved with this in particular, but uh, it's, um, yeah, when you look at like the uh, chivalric code of the medieval period, the lady who was always too far out of reach, really usually was somebody that was not they were not going to marry, um, but it was it was a love interest, and it was it it, it was often it reflected these kinds of extramarital affairs, mm-hmm. even so, it just it's just kind of um, wild stuff, I guess. Yeah. Um, so. Um, in, in passages such as these, um, the ideal marriage is upheld, and there's increased scrutiny on adulterers. So mm-hmm. I really think, and I think you mentioned this just in your interpretation, was that this is really about upholding the dignity of people and, and about um, uh, creating wholeness and relationships. Right. And I, I think that's where we're starting to head. But it's really imperfect because there's going to be two kind of lines of thought that impact our reformers. And so we're, we'll head into this. So... Um, now in Roman Catholic tradition, um, marriage was considered a much lesser state than singlehood, um, and especially chastity. So the expectation of course, is that priests, monks, and nuns, those serving the church would be unmarried and celibate. Often that was only in saying and not in reality, but, um, um, so the reformers are hard on this state claiming that this just goes against nature and creation. And I personally think this is a really important interpretive step as we are looking at the natural world and gaining respect from what we can observe. This is early modern, the emergence of science, early modern discussion, and this is a big step. Um, So this might coincide, for example, with increased advances in astronomy, where the new science is causing people to question what had been understood as biblical truth within scripture for, you know, there had been, at least during the Middle Ages, that assumption that the world is flat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but now we have belie- understanding with scientific proof that it's round. Yeah. And so we start to get people to say, oh, well, is the scripture completely not, not true? Is it, is it just irrelevant? And they're not quite there yet. But it does beg them to say, oh, how does scripture now fit in with now what we can prove with our eyes and our ears? So it's, it's a... It's a huge interpretive step. And mm-hmm. just on the side, the, the Roman Catholic Church is going to resist this um, until ultimately, um, ultimately, in terms of like astronomy, they're going to, going to, going to just embrace it and, yeah. and, and put up a, a really fancy um, 
a telescope, which they have today. (laughs) (laughs) So the reformers began to understand that writers of scripture are men of their day and can write only within the context of their experience. So coming back to marriage, um, there is this renaissance respect for nature and the world that God created and is within this creation that humans are part of God's plan and according to Calvin, because most humans are created into this natural world, we can see God's presence in it. So it's this is this is cool. So this is 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 important as the reformers attacked Roman Catholic practice of asceticism, playing that mutilating the natural body is an affront to God. In other words, God created us male and female to be in relationship with one another. So, and I think that's that's uh, uh, you know I like the fact that they they took that line because it seems very consistent with with. Um, Jesus, you know, citing the original intention yeah, of marriage I think in they Genesis. Did, I think they did a, a good job with that. And, and and Calvin really covers this in the Institutes at the beginning, you know, how we know God and, and, and kind of taking that step to say God is present in nature and we have to listen to nature um, because it will help us in leading us, pointing mm-hmm. us to, to God. So um, now while marriage is elevated it is recognized as a state of humans in the world, thus negating its sacramental status, which, of course, is not something done by Jesus. So in the Protestant world, divorce is recognized. Um, in not, right, Roman Catholicism, you have to have a marriage annulled. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is recognized. Even still. Even still, <laughs> exactly. So in other words, for the Protestants, it was better to divorce than to live in a loveless marriage. That's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, the intent of marriage has shifted here from that kind of contractual tradition of the Middle Ages to the emphasis of a loving houseford, household ordained by God to raise children. So, for example, in the words of John Carter, a Puritan minister, the bonds of marriage are broken when there is such bitterness in the household that the husband and wife are no longer working together. In other words, the sin of adultery occurred when the contract of the marriage fell apart. So... I think that's pretty astute. And this is a, a Puritan guy. So. Yeah. I think another important point, important point regard, in regard to Carter's comments is that there is some agency on the part of the woman to be in the marriage. In our scripture, the issuance of divorce was an activity done by men which would leave a woman without property or identity. And thus make it necessary for her to remarry. Yeah, exactly. Because otherwise she has no legitimate exactly. place in, in society. Exactly. So the Reformation practice recognizes the woman's value in the marriage and that arbitrary divorce by her male uh, partner injures her, right? And so this is what Jesus, of course, said, but it shifts the the purpose of marriage to show value of the family instead of a means to prevent lust. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a big deal, too, because it was, you know, Paul, better to marry than to be... (laughs) Right, than to burn, right? So... um, so the Reformation is this idea of the family as being the godly way to live. And oh my goodness, this is one of their main messages. Um, and the church and its accompanying civil magistrate will actually add additional laws for how to live within society. Manuals, hospita- house postilla, um, will be the major publications in the era teaching the members of their households how to live in the holy family. Mm. And it really becomes the backbone of modern society and expectation of how we live and marry today. Our nuclear families start to emerge. Um, and I think we see that many are pushing 
today are pushing to most postmodern sensibilities about about marriage and that families could look different. But this all begins that kind of mod, modern idea of the nuclear family. Early modern still is pretty broad. Family is includes a lot of servants and mm-hmm. um, maybe multi-generational, but we're moving towards this process. It's a very interesting shift. And I spent a lot of time with the house pastella in my research, and this is how... Um, uh, the the different gender roles become very defined within and supporting the family. So what is the role of the house father and house father of raising his family in church? What is the role of the house mother and being there for her children? So um, one of the, I'll, I'll put in this a little bit later, but um, uh, one of the things is uh, the emphasis on education, which is going to be a really, really big um a big part of the Reformation. And people have to read to be a good, in a good Christian marriage, you have to be able to teach the Bible to your children. And so men and women should be educated. No one's done that before. Mm-hmm. So average men and women. Right, <laughs> right. So now I have made this sound kind of lovely, but there's another argument that really perme- permeates early modern writing, and that's misogyny. And there is a belief in the late medieval, early modern world that women can't contain their sexual behavior, that as women um, tied to monthly cycles and bearing children makes them more primal and tempted by carnal lusts. I find this, <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's like, I want to say, methinks the man protesteth too much. You know, I mean, anybody who could, could make that with a straight face is either in complete denial or they've just lost their mind because, uh, I mean, you know, do we really think that that all of the sexual promiscuity that was out there in that day was was all initiated by women? Well, there were some that believed that, right? And, <laughs> that's, and you, yeah, that's just ridiculous, right? And you could see like. Um, um, Christine de Pizan, who, who wrote on the City of Ladies, it's a late medieval piece, and she's like, here's all these wonderful and virtuous ladies, and they're you know, being completely bombarded by these men who are holding them as uh, that they are slaves to their bodies, and look at all the things they've done. And so this is, becomes this kind of, kind of separation between women and men, and yet some women will buy into these male arguments, and it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's really... Um, still it's, true today. And it's still true today, right? So this idea impacts part of the witchcraft tradition where witches, usually single women, are thought to have sex with their familiars, um, that they need to have sex all the time. And, and, and if you read into this, uh, to this um, body of literature, there's all stuff about, you know, the the uh, the broom being a sexual object and mm. i mean it's really it's really pretty nasty mm. <laughs> um so it's one of the primary reasons that women are left out of the re- leadership of the church too that they are just too far from god um so marriage provided women with a place for their lusts and we do find writers um thus that consider adultery primarily a fault of the woman mm. and therefore look to punish the woman for her infidelity and if a man is caught in adultery, it is obviously the fault of the woman. Yeah. So they twist this scripture to fit that. They take that piece out of there. So I found uh, Juan de Madalando, who is a Roman Catholic commentator who actually has some, like he'll recognize bap- Protestant baptism as well as Roman Catholic. But he says, quote, whether wife or friend or relative or sister or mother, if she is the cause of sin to us, 
she must be put away. Adultery is the reason peculiar to marriage for putting a wife away a wife because she violates the conjugal fidelity that is the basis, as it were, of marriage and therefore because it is a civil contract. She dissolves the marriage. Wow. Yeah. So that's a piece that's out there. So you have these kind of, this kind of idea that while women are, are gaining status within the family, women are, are, are learning to read, women are being um, upheld, you get this other one of women are the cause of all evil. Mm. And they they're, they work against each other. And so you can see it's like if you move to the Salem witchcraft times um, that, you know, women that are perfectly within the context of this marriage and are, are, are usually protected and even held up. But those who would maybe be alone or single, maybe her husband walked out on her are going to be considered to be evil. And it's going to be her fault. Suspicious and even dangerous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So where does this leave us? So while the Reformation did uphold marriage and elevated this role of wife and mother, it did continue to place women under the instruction and guidance of a man. Because the nunnery was no longer an option, a woman only had um, status within the marriage bond. Although perhaps the status more respected through the Protestant reformers than before. And I've mentioned this uh, before, as it, uh, that this emphasis on the family is a centerpiece of teaching for the Reformation. So um, that's one of the really good things we get out of it. Um, but on the other hand, whether it really elevates women's life, rights in the long run, there's some debate on that. Um, because, uh, um, uh, because of some of the things... That, um, that that lead to this kind of heightened misogyny that happens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think this idea of educated women and, and being dangerous all kind of fit within that context. And I think it's also within the the dis, just kind of disruption of the status quo that, yeah. that fits that. Um, so um, I do think ultimately... Um, that we can recognize what's, what this kind of women and the women's treatment in the Reformation as an important step in our history to recognize and value God's gift to humanity and give us pause to think how we uphold and celebrate all people. So I think what becomes the emphasis of this passage does that mm-hmm. in the long run. Mm-hmm. But I think you can see how this idea of marriage and divorce and equality in marriage um, shifts a little bit too. Sure. Thanks, Thanks, Christy. Hi, everyone. We're back. And during our break, um, Alan and I were talking about how the Sermon of the Mount and and this vision of, of the kingdom and the kingdom world would look like. And then today, specifically, kind of these specific examples, but but not every example is in, or not every not everything we would run into about how to live our lives as kingdom people. So, Alan, what's what's the challenge for us? Well, I think the challenge is, you know, we, we want to take this passage like any other biblical passage. We want to take it seriously, but a lot of people don't know how to do that other than just take it in a in a very superficially literal fashion. And and unfortunately, that's used to justify all kinds of things, you know, from from quote unquote family values that advocate for um, a woman to stay in abusive marriage, or you know, marriage as a sacrament in the Catholic world where you can't leave the marriage. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just you, you can't do it. It's just not possible. Right. To you know, and and. and 
um, part of the problem here, as, as you mentioned, is, you know, we shouldn't treat this as some sort of casuistic kind of um, law where, where all the specific examples are spelled out. You know, if you've ever read a, any legal codes, you know, right. they get into great detail about all the specifics. Right. That's not what's going on here. Jesus is taking examples to, to spell out um, what it looks like to practice the main principle. And the main principle of the kingdom is do unto others as you would have right. them do unto you. Right. And it's really a restatement of the command to love your neighbor as yourself, mm-hmm. which Jesus says also includes your enemies, not just the people you like or the people mm-hmm. who, who look like mm-hmm. you and, and live where you live and talk like you. And, and, and you know, so it's, it's, it, it, it goes deeper is the idea mm-hmm. than, than sort of the superficiality that we might bring to it when we just say, well, I, I take the Bible literally, so I take the Bible seriously. Well, but I, this literalism certainly is still used today in trying Absolutely. to pull this specific thing out. And I think it can cause more harm. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and harm to people and harm to people's wholeness and their sense of dignity. And, you know, and I, I keep thinking of, as you talked about these people staying in marriages. So my husband's grandmother, um, Roman Catholic, brought up that way, married, this is such a horrible story, uh, married, uh, uh, married uh, his, his, his wife and she stayed in that marriage, but he actually had another family mm. with another wife. Mm. Should have, uh, lots of abuse, should have divorced but she wouldn't because she's Roman Catholic mm-hmm. and and just the the pain and suffering that that caused not only on her but her family sure ultimately was was that really worth was that really worth it because of this you know supposed letter of the law that really didn't didn't understand the broader intent of yeah. and um how often does it happen oh all the time i mean you, you've got and you've so you've got people who are who are trapped in a loveless marriage or even an abusive marriage because of this uh, superficial literalism that that tries to tries to take this seriously, but I think fails because they mm-hmm. miss the main point, mm-hmm. which is you know how do you apply the principle of do unto others as you would have them do unto you in real life? But um, you know the other the opposite is is sort of the, the situation that we mentioned earlier about no fault divorce, you know where. Somebody just decides they're tired of the marriage and they file divorce and the, the other person has no right. say in the matter. And so right. you wind up divorced um, and um, you didn't want to be divorced. And if you had a say in it, you would have you would have not assented to you. You, you would right. have not given your assent to the divorce, but you have no choice because, you know, no fault divorce means that all all, all that happens to happen is one one of the partners in the marriage files for divorce and you're going to be divorced whether you want it or not and so you know neither i think really reflects this ideal of of living out um, a genuine love for others Mm -hmm. that comes from the heart and is and is um, translated into authentic action and behavior Mm -hmm. and and you know so yeah the question i think with I mean, we're dealing with this with this situation of marriage, but I mean, you know, I think what we're trying to do is drill down to, you know, what is the principle here that what it, you know, that that we can apply in various situations that go beyond what Jesus dealt with. And again, it's 
in the in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's very clear. Jesus says, "Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right. Treat other people the way you want to be treated." I tell my confirmation class all the time. You know, I know that what would Jesus do was a cliche mm-hmm. for a long time. It was, but but right. if we if we really ask ourselves that question seriously, what would Jesus mm-hmm. do? when it comes to taking another person's life? What would Jesus do when it comes to how we relate mm-hmm. to um, our, our, our partners, our spouses, or persons of the opposite sex to whom we're attracted? Um, what would Jesus do when it comes to um, telling the truth? What would Jesus do when it comes to relationships with our parents that might be mm-hmm. strained. What would Jesus do right. when it comes to property well, rights and respecting, you know, right. that, that's the whole point of thou shalt not steal, right? Well, and hopefully in, in that in that line of questioning, you really get down to um, this breadth of scripture that we've been talking about, this, this, this idea of loving your neighbor and not getting down to trying to take things out of context right. and, and put certain rules. And, you know, I, I've thought that I've thought that often. I don't think that was a bad, um, I don't think that was a, a, a bad approach, except that it became so cliche that I right. don't think people really ever did think about right. what would really would. They didn't take that Jesus seriously. Do. Yeah. And um, it became kind of a, catchphrase of the Christian right, and then they would kind of misconstrue it without really seeing who Jesus was and what was... Well, it just became a catchphrase, a slogan that that justified uh, a a certain brand of morality that, you know, we equated with quote-unquote family values, which, you know, again, translated into keeping women in marriages that were loveless or or abusive and, and, um, you know spouses you know going around and cheating on one another right. and and you know that that's not that's not what god that that was no. not the purpose of marriage no the purpose of marriage was to create a relationship that right. was to i think bring honor to god by the way the spouses interact with one another right and we're not going to do that nobody's going to do that every day but you know in general if that's the if that's the intention i think it comes down to you know purity of the heart <laughs> and right. and right. and if you're if your intentions and motivations are pure and right. and you really are trying to do what jesus is going to would would have you do you're you're not going to go too far off yeah, exactly. And so we don't it, have to lay out specific rules about right, each case. I agree. I think part of the challenge, of course, is if both partners are on board with that, which right. which which it takes is. a lot of work. It is. It takes a lot of work and a lot of commitment and a lot of... And that doesn't always happen. And that doesn't always happen. So one person may be invested and someone else right. may not be. And, and um, that's part of the brokenness of our that's world. That's part of the brokenness. You know, we, we talked about how... how Jesus went back to the original intention and creation and creation was perfect, but creation is fallen. And, right. and so, um, you know, unfortunately in our fallen world, um, uh, things don't always turn out the way God intended. Mm-hmm. And um, you're right. I mean, all kinds of situations come up that make it, I would say, where um, divorce is not necessarily a good thing, but it's better than the but better than the right, alternative, right? And um, I, and I think that's important for people. And of course, but I think the next question I want to push on by this because then I'll have people say, "Well, maybe they can rationalize. I've been divorced. It was the right thing to do. Um, maybe it was my husband was abusive. Maybe it was um, you know 
there was no love. We were, we didn't talk to each other. You know, the breakdown that, that even my reformers identified, but yet they still feel like they've sinned so much because of the divorce that they aren't worthy of being married again, or they certainly can't be in church again. And I hear this sometimes mm-hmm. because there's a lot of, there's a lot of criticism because if, if there's this broke apart, you know, then you have gone against God. You're right. You're, and and an alter, and I think a version of that is, or if I do remarry, am I living in perpetual adultery? There you go. Yeah. Right. So, and I think I think that misconstrues the point that Jesus is trying to make here, because I think the point that Jesus is trying to make here is um, a call to relationships that are defined by genuine love, and um, what does that look like in practice, right? So, you know, we're going to try, hopefully, to do that. Mm-hmm. We're all going to fail. We're all going to fall short. But uh, does that mean somehow that God is going to punish us by keeping us in perpetual uh, singleness if we've divorced or by, um, you know, labeling us as perpetual adulterers? If we remarried, right? I, I don't think I don't see that, that. I think that misses the logic of what Jesus is trying right. to accomplish here. Jesus is trying to put, uh, trying to say, you know, the heart and soul of what it means to seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness is to love God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself. Mm-hmm. It is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Mm-hmm. This fulfills everything that God could expect from anybody. Right. Right. And and you know I. That makes it harder for us because it's easier to follow a specific set of rules. It's harder for us to figure out what does love, what does what is the truly loving thing to do here, mm-hmm. and and um, we may have to sacrifice to do the truly loving thing beyond what we can even imagine. Um, but I think if we are seeking to 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 be truly loving to the best of our ability, I, I think that's all that God asks of us. And I don't I think, think so I don't think, I don't see either suffering divorce, whether you wanted it or not. Maybe you initiated divorce because you, you felt like you were in a loveless marriage. Maybe you felt like you had no, no other choice. I don't see that as sin. I don't see that person as being perpetually, um, um, you know, rejected by God. Um, and, and I really don't see uh, you know, there may be cases where it's better off for someone to remain single just because mm-hmm. of their own issues. But I, I don't think we can prescribe, you right. know, that all remarriage after divorce is adultery. That's right. that's not what Jesus was getting at. Well, you know, what is the loving thing? Right. I think that's the question. What is the loving thing? And that applies to all of these. I think that applies to all the commandments. You know, what is the loving right. thing to do when it comes to having a, a broken relationship with someone that, that is strained maybe by anger and, and irritation and, and frustration? What is the loving thing to do when you have a property dispute? What is the loving thing to do right. when, when it comes to speaking the truth? Right. Uh, um, you know, these, the, the, right. this is the principle, I think, that Jesus is articulating. Well, and I think, you know, I agree. And I think people from the outside that are trying to read this literally and then they're posing judgment on these people, I think that actually does much more harm yeah. than, than kind of a, a sense of, of forgiveness and reconciliation and helping that person rebuild their sense of self-worth, um, 
And that to me is the call, not the judgment of, oh, sorry, you messed up. And again, we don't even know, we may not even know what had gone on in the relationship. I mean, you, you might find yourself divorced and didn't want to be. And so you're at fault for that too. And right. that person's so broken. And I think, I think our call is to help people find their wholeness in God. Uh, I would say it this themselves. way. I would say it this way. The principle of God's kingdom is to seek what is just, mm-hmm. to practice mercy, to um, practice faithfulness, to truly love. And that's the principle. I cannot see any consistency between judging others, pointing the fingers, blaming them, any of that, and, right. and, and the principle of God's kingdom. Right. And I think that's the problem is you kind of have to, you get, have to get beyond the surface of the literal um, wording of scripture in places to drill down right. and define what is the principle of the kingdom right. here. I think that's, and you, you can find it in places, but you have to look for it. That's, that's really well said. That is really well said. And I think, you know, anyone listening that might be in that space, I think they now have a very clear uh, place for their own, begin their own forgiveness and their own, in their own healing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and l- love brings healing and wholeness. Love is, love can be hard and love oftentimes re- requires of us the, the most and the best we have to give. And, and we may, it may be painful to love, mm-hmm. um, but love is the way of the kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.